Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast in the Freshfields Fintech in Focus series and part of our deep dive into ESG matters in fintech. Today we're talking about the G in ESG, governance and why it matters for fintech companies. My name is Claire Harrop. I'm a senior associate in our regulatory team in London and I'm joined here today by Thomas Clark, a partner in our financial institutions disputes team in London, Kenneth Hoy, a counsel in the regulatory team in Hong Kong, and Pamela Marcoliesi, a partner in our Silicon Valley office who is an expert on corporate governance matters. Without meaning to preempt any of the content of the podcast, when I think about what governance means, I think about how companies are directed and controlled and about how they make decisions. Governance is something that can, to some people, seem a bit boring, but as we'll hear today, it is really important and increasingly so as firms get bigger. Governance has been a particularly hot topic for financial services regulators since the 2008 financial crisis. Regulators are interested not only in governance arrangements that look good on paper, but also their effectiveness in practice. And it can be difficult for fast growing companies to get right. There have been a number of instances of high profile governance failings at fintech companies over recent years. So to look into this a bit further, Tom, what is governance and why is it important? So as you said, Claire, thanks. The uh, governance is a topic that has been a hot topic for uh, financial services companies for a while now. And it is one of those topics that is really all pervasive. And it goes ultimately to how a business is run and how well a business is run. It's one of those topics that, as you say, can often be seen as a bit boring and, and dull or something for you know yesterday's companies and not for new companies of today because policies and procedures and so on. But it's one of those things that actually, if you do it properly, it helps you manage your risk and, uh, and actually can help enhance the quality of your decision making. And there are real benefits to fast growing companies of getting it right, including at an early stage. It'll save you time, money and pain in the long run and the company will be better and more effectively run. Thanks, Tom. And, and just thinking about the benefits of getting it right. One area which has come up fairly frequently uh, in recent times is diversity and inclusion. So thinking about the UK, the PRA, Bank of England and FCA published a joint discussion paper on DNI in the financial services sector. And it's clear from that paper that the UK regulators really want firms to think about advancing diversity and inclusion through governance arrangements. With that in mind, Ken, what issues should companies be thinking about on the DNI side beyond making sure that their policies and procedures are in place? Claire, thank you for this. It, and I certainly agree. I think DNI is very important in the fintech space. You've seen articles and news these days saying that actually there's insufficient diversity in the fintech area. And in fact, some statistics show that of 34% of European company startups, there's no woman on the board and there's only 9% that are from ethnic minorities. And these figures are, are pretty important because it's actually very important to have a positive, diverse culture, especially if you're fintech looking to grow to different customer base, different jurisdictions, different age groups. Having a diversity of thought really, apart from a compliance perspective, helps you from a commercial perspective as well. And in terms of the issues that they should really be thinking of, um, one question is what is diversity itself? 
is the gender, age of ethnicity. Different jurisdictions have different approaches, you know, as mentioned in the IOSCO's report in 2016. Notwithstanding this, really, I think uh, the trend is that regulators are moving towards a, a more focus on diversity, as you mentioned, Claire. In Asia, it's been a bit slower. Financial regulators looking at it, but hasn't progressed as far. But on, on the listed company space, you see the Hong Kong Stock Exchange issuing consultation paper recently, uh, focusing on diversity. For example, saying that you know, actually single gender board is no longer acceptable. And they're also creating mandatory disclosures on diversity targets. We're seeing a similar trend in the UK as well with the FCA consulting on more diverse boards. Apart from the regulatory space, it's also important to note that diversity is another area of focus for investors. And I think, Pam, you have good experience in this area. Would you mind sharing a little bit more as well? Sure. Thank you, Ken. The experience in the US has been interesting, unlike in some other jurisdictions across the globe where some of these issues have been pushed through legislation. In the United States, it really has been, to a large extent, spearheaded by investors. We more recently have a little bit of legislation, certainly here in California, where we have diversity legislation requiring certain diversity on the board, and some other states have adopted similar legislation, but that's much more recent. We also have the NASDAQ stock exchange that also just implemented certain requirements in connection with companies going public or being listed on the NASDAQ, needing to have diversity at the board level. But again, all of that is much more recent. Over the last 10 years or so, however, investors have really been focused on this. I think that many of them view it as a measure of good governance. If you have a diverse board. I think many of them view it as a sign of, of, of just good governance and good operations. Since they're focused on the board, which is where they started, they've also started to focus on diversity at the management level. And more recently in the last few years, diversity really across the entire workforce, because of course, it's very hard to have diversity at the management level and in the boardroom if you don't have a diverse pipeline that you're developing. And so They've been very vocal about these issues, and it's very typical here during proxy season, which is a time around annual shareholder meetings for shareholders to bring forward shareholder proposals requiring or asking companies that they do more on the diversity front at all of these different levels. And so I think that companies have really taken this to heart because there are now far, far, far fewer companies that don't have any diversity at the board level whatsoever. And I think companies just understand some of the, not only some of the business benefits, but some of the softer benefits of focusing on diversity as well. And in particular, I would say one of the tremendous benefits of it is just from a recruiting and retention perspective. The talent market, as everybody knows, is extremely competitive and employees really want to work at places that look like them. And so I think that companies are really are, are taking this as one other reason to really focus on diversity in addition to all the other reasons, of course. But from a, a retention and recruiting perspective, there are obviously tremendous benefits. Thank you. And that's incredibly important for all fintech companies to bear in mind. Another thing that we should bear in mind is proportionality and the governance that works for a small startup in a very early stages of its life cycle might not work at all for a systemically important publicly listed financial institution group. So, so Pam, I'd be interested to hear how do public and private companies and smaller and larger companies differ in their approach to governance? Thank you, Claire. That's a really 
good question because it listed it as a very theoretical matter. The regulations apply across the board, whether you're small or large or whether you're private or, or public. But I think that really misses the point of the issue, which is to say that when you're smaller, of course, you just have fewer resources, whether they be financial resources or just people resources. There are just fewer of them, of course. And so what you can do from a compliance perspective obviously differs. I think the other piece of it is from a strategic perspective, your focus may be a little bit different when you're just getting started and you're looking to either disrupt a market or really stake your ground in terms of the positioning of the company in the market. I think that you, it's very important to think about things like being first mover or first to market, those kinds of things and miring yourself into the compliance schemes that apply to much larger companies can be very much at odds with that. And so I think that the cost benefit analysis can sometimes be a little bit different. But then of course, as you get larger, things change. So in particular, the composition of the board tends to change as you obviously as you get closer to being a public company. And certainly when you're a public company, you start having public company directors on the board, public company directors have fiduciary duties over which they can be sued. And at least in this country, that is something that directors take very seriously. And so when they're looking at risk oversight and those kinds of issues, their, their lens, the lens through which they, they view some of the strategic decisions of the company changes. The other thing, especially in this country, is we tend to be quite litigious. And so I think that when companies make decisions in the public eye, some of the risks associated with that are far heightened in the sense that if it turns out that directors wind up getting sued over a breach of their fiduciary duties or there winds up being some kind of a stock drop and disclosure related lawsuit, those are things that can be very expensive and time consuming for management. And so I think that that very much changes the cost benefit analysis that I was mentioning earlier on. Ken, anything you would add to that from your perspective? Pam, I absolutely agree with what you've said. I think one additional observation, sort of from an Asia slash Hong Kong angle, is that for small companies, when I spoke to clients, it seems that it can be a bit difficult to focus on diversity at an early stage, as you mentioned. And one issue they're facing is the lack of talent. Yeah, you know, in, in Asia, sometimes there's a lack of talent and they do find it hard enough to find people to fill in their company as well. So I think alongside corporate rules, as the market matures and more and more people get more specialized and have knowledge in fintech, I think that's another area that will help diversity grow. Thank you very much. And just thinking of things like listing requirements and and potential exits and becoming public eventually, Pam, what are some of the practical steps that a company can take in this area? So I would say at a macro level, a practical step is really just a a change in in mindset. Given some of the things we've been talking about, I think the considerations are, are different once you're public. And so I think acknowledging that is really important. And so when we prepare companies that are going through their IPO, we obviously very much focus on compliance and making sure companies have the proper policies and procedures in place. And there's a whole host of them that are required once you go public. But in addition to having the right policies and procedures in place, I think another important step is training. Having proper policies and procedures is great, but if the workforce isn't following them, that's actually can sometimes be worse than not having them at all. And so making sure that employees are trained on them, understand the new responsibilities and sort of the new paradigm of what it means to be public is really important. But 
on that note, maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to Tom. Tom can tell us a little bit more granularly the kinds of steps public companies should be considering. Thanks, Pam. And I completely agree with what you say about the change in mindset as well. So often with fast growing companies, the heart of them, they're obviously very good at what they do, the product, the idea that they are promoting and that is the bedrock of all of their growth. The people who then run that company and promote that company are brilliant at at doing that particular aspect of the business. The, The challenge is frequently, and we've seen it in the past in in other companies and other high growth um, industries of which you know tech is kind of the new newer kid on the block that the uh, policies and procedures and uh, things that were in place perhaps at the start of the company's life cycle are then not necessarily fit for purpose once that sort of explosive growth has happened and so as pam said it is a change of mindset it starts with the policies and procedures which fundamentally set out who's supposed to do what, when and why, and then embedding them properly within the organisation. In the financial services sector in particular, senior management responsibility and accountability is really important. And it's something that financial services regulators have really focused on, particularly post the financial crisis. That means it's important to make sure that management are getting the information that they need to make the right decisions in a timely way. And there are a number of other things, and I can't possibly cover them all in this podcast, that are seen by investors and regulators as real hallmarks of a company that's kind of got their head in the right place on governance. Taking advice when you need it to support your decision making, keeping good and accurate records to make sure you have the audit trail to support what it is that you were doing and the decisions that you made recognising where there are skills or experience gaps that need filling and making sure there's a rigorous process to making sure that is dealt with. And then the last example I would give is acting on lessons learned. Regulators and investors may be, I'm not saying they will be forgiving if something goes wrong the first time, but it's often even worse if something goes wrong and then it transpires that the thing that went wrong actually went wrong perhaps to a slightly lesser magnitude earlier on, and either nothing was done about it or lessons weren't learned sufficiently. And sometimes you can't stop the thing going wrong again, but at least if you show that you tried the last time, then that is something that can be really helpful. And it's that mindset of thinking, okay, there's been a problem, let's look at it, let's work out what happened and uh, try and make sure it doesn't happen again is all part of the good governance and decision-making that really supports the risk mitigation, but also promotes more effective decision-making and the success of the company. Thank you very much, Tom, Ken and Pam, for your insights today. If I might wrap up with three key points that I took away from this podcast. The first is good governance is intended to be a help and not a hindrance to business, and it can promote more effective and better informed decision making, including getting the right people involved at the right time. The second is that in the fintech world, good governance is a regulator expectation, and it will be on investors' agendas as well. Getting it right early on can reap benefits in the future, especially when keeping options open for an exit. And the third point is that the expectations towards improving DNI and how this is not only an expectation of investors and regulators, but it's also commercially beneficial for companies, whether that's thinking about tapping into new markets or bringing employees along the way. Please do check out the other podcasts in our FinTech in Focus series. 
We also publish content regularly on many topics relevant for technology companies and investors on the Freshfields TQ blog.